Good morning. My name is Nate. My Dharma name is Juan J. Sun. In a sense, this service began for me on Thursday morning when I went to Trader Joe's to buy these flowers, knowing that I would get to bring them to Reverend Wongon and she would do something magical with them. The title of my talk is a koan of Uncle Ralph. In January this year, Reverend Wongong sent 20 koans to Dharma name holders, suggesting we each pick one for contemplation and discussion. I chose one on reincarnation. Historically, this concept had troubled me, and I wanted to see where I was with it now and to get our Reverend's perspective. Here's my koan. In our present lives, we can recognize the karmic consequences of our actions. How can we recognize the karmic consequences continuing from our past lives when we no longer remember our past lives? How is the karma we accumulate in this life passed on to future lives? She and I met a month later and I shared what had arisen for me, then asked her, what does this mean to you? She said, I don't think it's supposed to have a specific meaning. It's an invitation to enter into a discussion with yourself. I said, well, that's not really an answer. <laughs> she thought that was funny and added, I like what you had to say. Why don't you use it to give a short talk? Well, that wasn't really an answer either. But, but I had wondered why passages in the scriptures that mentioned past life used to bother me. When I began coming to the temple nine years ago, I was thoroughly embedded in the scientific materialist model of existence, which said by my lights, no one had ever died and lived to tell about it. So anything about past lives was speculation, being given a credibility that was not justified. But so what? Why the tantrums? Why was I not coming from a neutral place and just curious? I think because I was attached to being right, just a little. I'd invested being right with the power to diminish or aggrandize me, to affirm or repudiate. I'd so thoroughly mixed my beingness with my beliefs that I could no longer distinguish one from the other. At that time, the only self of which I was clearly aware was the conceptual egoic self. That one cared intensely about being right and experienced being wrong as an anxious loss of self-esteem. So when one of my beliefs got challenged, it seemed as though I myself was being threatened, almost physically threatened, as I would get flooded with adrenaline. But as someone once asked me, where's your dog in this fight? I now think of this defensiveness as a sort of psychosis, being disconnected from reality, reality being my true self, and believing I shared my being with the concept. I used to think nobody should assert something is true if it could not be proven. And for me, proof existed only in the material world. But our discussion today is not about the material world. The scriptures say, all things are the mind's creation, which is true. 
But here we are not talking about things. We are not talking about subject-object relationship. This is about subject, my deep self, without object, prior to objects, pure beingness. Of course, ego would happily attach to being right about reincarnation and defend that position. So even when considering sublime topics, it helps to be mindful. It's okay to let the mind ask the question. Just don't let the mind answer it. The koan begins, in our present lives, we can recognize karmic consequences of our actions. I do recognize karmic consequences quite a lot these days. I can see how my practice has changed my demeanor, and I can see how that has increased the love and connection in my life. But I imagine I miss most of whatever complex karmic consequences I may be generating throughout the day. Sometimes I have found out years later that something I was barely aware of having said or done had a profound impact on someone else. So if I'm, if I'm unaware of most of the karmic consequences I'm generating in this life, unaware of this web of connectivity, how could I hope to recognize karmic consequences from past lives, to recognize karmic connections within the very consciousness out of which this present life was formed? Which brings me to Uncle Ralph. Ralph was good to me. Growing up, he taught me to sail and took me on many sailing adventures. After he and my aunt divorced, he would sometimes invite me over to his apartment for dinner. He kept up with me during college years and afterwards when I moved to another city. But as a young adult, I began to hear stories about his alcoholism and the pain this caused my aunt and cousins. During family gatherings, I began to notice there was anxiety in the air whether he would start drinking. Gradually, I formed judgments against Ralph for his alcoholism. I began to think less of him and started to keep my distance, even though I was fond of him. He died in a car crash 15 years ago, killed by a drunk driver. I think of him occasionally with happy memories of what he gave me and the colorful character that he was. With the development of my Buddhist practice, I was able to see my judgments toward my uncle more clearly, and I felt regret that I had withheld expressing my genuine fondness for him, regret that I may have added to his guilt and isolation. Sixteen months ago, my daughter delivered twin boys, Corey and Reed. Just a few months ago, I noticed a fleeting expression across Corey's face, and I thought, oh my God, that's Ralph. I had an immediate wave of awe and gratitude, sensing I was being given an opportunity to repay a debt. That possibly in loving and caring for this baby, I would be loving and caring for Ralph. So now I enjoy talking to Corey as if he's Ralph come for a visit. When I'm playing with him or feeding him, sometimes I say, thank you, Ralph, for all that you did for me. I enjoy seeing the possibility that my uncle's formlessness has found expression in the form of this baby. I don't know if that's true, but it makes for a richer experience and has opened me to another layer of wonder over our interconnectedness.
Recently, I heard a whirlpool analogy for reincarnation that spoke to me. Imagine we are all whirlpools in a river. We are made entirely of the water, but each of us exists as our own temporary contained whirl of energy, separate from the flow of the river. When my time on earth comes to a close, my whirlpool gradually loses its integrity and rejoins the flow of the river. But what if there are residual, unresolved bits of swirling energy from my whirlpool? Then, when another whirlpool forms downstream, might it incorporate some of my residual energy, some still contracted piece of consciousness that had not reached full resolution as a me or as a Ralph, which now gets to continue on its journey toward ultimate dissolution in the flow of pure consciousness. I had no sense that the original Ralph had been recreated for a second run. Nothing to imply that anyone was being rewarded or punished, just continuing on the path toward awakening. Consciousness, working out the kinks, as Ralphs and Nates and newborn babies, in an unimaginable display of complexity, connectedness, and beauty. On the relative material level, this similarity would be explained by genetics. But perhaps that is similar to learning the names of things. That's a pine tree, that's a leaf, that's a robin. Thus moving from a direct, unfiltered experience into a conceptual world. Useful, but perhaps losing some of the awe and joy of it. Now, as part of my practice, I mindfully remove labels to be fully present with the experience of pine tree, leaf, robin. So if I see this experience of Ralph as genetics and stop there, might I close off less filtered ways of experiencing this phenomenon? Might I see the similarity to Ralph, but miss the reappearance, and thus miss the love and gratitude I feel when I recognize my uncle and my grandbaby, miss the wonder of a profound, intelligent aliveness connecting them. I think it's fair to assume that the actuality of transferring karma after the death of the body, if that's what happens, is prodigiously more rich and alive than any concept. But then, isn't that the point of the koan? To allow the thinking mind to crash into the deeper truth that's being pointed at, but which is beyond conception. So the koan stands like a beacon on an island of rock. Over and over, the mind sends out its tightly wound concepts to crash upon its shore. In this way, a koan can be a belief buster. Who are you going to call? <laughs> belief busters. When I asked Reverend Wongong what the koan meant, she did not give me a definitive answer. She said it was an invitation into a discussion with myself. Do I believe in the scientific view of reincarnation? Do I believe in the Buddhist view of reincarnation? Either belief feels confining to me. If I hold a belief, I generally want the world to agree with me. And when it don't, there's going to be trouble. What if I can just be open and stay in the question without landing on an answer? How does that feel? For me, it feels untroubled, not needy relaxed, spacious. 
Koans are designed to confound answers, designed to create turbulence for the logical mind. And when the turbulence becomes intolerable or exhausts itself, there can be surrender. And with surrender comes peace. I received this koan in January, duly considered it, and called Reverend Wong Kong in February to set up a time to share my reflections. I enjoyed this process so much that as we were wrapping up, I told her I'd like to do another one. She paused and then said delicately, I was surprised to hear from you so soon. This was meant to be your koan for the year, not for a month. Why don't you keep this one and come back next year? Uh, no, well, thank you. I am complete. Thank you.